While working on the sermon this week, um, you may have seen I posted a little thing on our church page about uh, the phrase, no man is an island. It just kept kind of rolling through my mind as I read through this text and was working my way through it. And as, as David was, was talking about and praying about and, and, and referring us to how our lives and what we experience in our lives impact and affect the lives of others. And this idea that no man is an island came to mind. And I was familiar with it, but went back and read again this 16th century meditation by the poet John Donne. Now, he was more than just a poet, um, but I, I put this on that post and I put it in your sermon notes. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thy own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So that excerpt comes from this extended meditation by Dunn, where he talks about in an understanding from now he's a 16th century Christian um, and his understanding of life, of suffering, of death and of how those are interconnected amongst humanity, about how all of our lives are connected, he says. And just as the dirt or a clod would wash away from the mainland and that mainland is then thus diminished. So he says all of us are impacted. We are involved in mankind together. And every death, every difficulty, every, as we understand it from a Christian perspective, every joy and every trial impacts all of us. Our, our community, our culture would be much healthier, church, if we would recognize that truth. That what happens over on that side of town impacts me as well. You know, it's not just over there. It's, it's over here. That interconnectedness is important. And, and, and Dunn concludes the whole meditation by talking about the treasure of affliction. Now, that's not something that's a part of excerpts usually from, from his meditation. But he says that affliction is a treasure that causes men to grow and mature. And like money is essential for a journey... Affliction is essential for our journey home, our journey to heaven. And so, as he talks about us gaining wisdom and perspective and encouragement from each other, he reminds us, when you hear that bell tolling, and then it was a notification of death, he says, just know that it's tolling for you as well. So this interconnectedness. Of my joys and my sorrows and your joys and your sorrows and your trials and your celebrations that we share in those. Okay? So the smallest of the Hebrew letters is, is the yod. And literally it's just a, it can be a dot when it's used in some places. It can be a little tiny line that resembles your pinky that's kind of turned like that. It's, it's just one little bitty letter. And that letter is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 5.18 when he says that not one jot or tittle 
will be diminished from God's law. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this small letter that is so seemingly insignificant begins every first word of the passage that we're in. And, and it's used to communicate, this little small letter is used to communicate some huge truths that we can, if we're not careful, overlook and, and really not think too much about. You see, the psalmist here, David is saying that our experiences, our joys, our sorrows, our afflictions, our trials affect others. They affect others. And as he considers his own life, as he considers his own afflictions, then he recognizes, first off, that they come from, listen to this, from the faithful hand of God. Everything that comes into his life comes from the faithful hand of God. And it comes... For the purpose of building him up and building others up. And he never prays through this for God to remove his affliction. He simply prays for God to comfort him through it and use it in the lives of others. Use it in his own life. So he he just reminds us of that as we go through this life. We look to God. We look to his word. We look to his statutes. We look to his promises. And we rest in those, we trust in those. And it's in those that we find our hope, our comfort, or His mercy and His love. And that as we do that, we also recognize that others are affected by that. So that's kind of the focus of this. First thing that He says, notice what He says in this first verse. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. This is a foundational truth, church. Your life is planned and it is purposeful. Your life is planned and it is purposeful. And understanding this is foundational. Some Hebrew scholars, some rabbis teach that this little letter, the Yod, is symbolic of humility because of its size, because it's so small. Okay? And, and because of that, its, it's, it's smallness symbolizes our smallness in the light of who God is. It symbolizes our frailty in the light of his strength, our temporal nature in the light of his eternality. So when they look at that letter, they think of of humility, that he is our creator and we are his creation. He made us. He fashioned us. And so in Genesis 2, when the Lord formed man, worked with his hands, picked up that piece of clay, that piece of dust, and he formed it into something like a skilled potter, a craftsman, and he breathed life into it. That's true for every human being. Every human being. Psalm 139, we've read that, we've heard it. Dr. Aiken preached through that. That reminder that you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, he says, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Lord, you made me. God made you. He made you precisely the way you are. And it's a cliche, but it's true, is it not? He does not make junk. God makes no junk. And so every human being is created in the image of God with worth and value. 
And the psalmist said, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. The psalmist knew and we should know we should understand this. This is a foundational scriptural truth. We are not the accident of some primordial ooze and accidental clashing together of atoms. Listen, church, if that's the case, then it is survival of the fittest. And I'm concerned about me, period. If that's true then you need to just buck up, man up, and be mean. Because your survival depends on it. If that's the case. But that's not. That's not the case. Hebrews 11.3 says that this is an essential characteristic of saving faith. No, it's not the first step. But by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. A foundational truth of the Christian faith, and I think something that's essential to our faithful walk with Christ and our faithful walk with other people, is that we are made in the image of God and His hands formed us and fashioned us. It is foundational to that. I heard it. I remember when Dr. Aiken was here. And he began his sermon by saying that black lives matter, and I went, oh, no, Danny, don't say that. I'm just, I'll be honest with you. But then he went on and he beautifully explained what he meant by that. In that saying that while he could not, and I don't believe any Christian can, identify with the foundational truths and principles that that organization is built upon, we can hold to the truth that Lives of color matter. Every color of life matters, right? We can hold to that truth. But here's where, all right, here's where we have to be careful with that because we also, for the most part, I think, as Bible believing conservative Christians would say that, well, that should affect a lot of things in our lives because that means I'm pro-life, okay? And, and yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote a pro-life ticket or I'm gonna hold to that. But let's be careful. This is not a political truth. This is a biblical truth that should not just impact decisions we make as citizens. It should impact how we spend our money, how we spend our time, our relationships, who we serve and how we serve them. I value very little someone who says I vote pro-life, but doesn't live pro-life. Doesn't invest their lives in the lives of others for the sake of building them up. Your vote means squat to me if you're not backing that up. If you're not backing up a political position with a life that's lived out that says God formed every human being. He crafted them together and they are valuable. Your hands made and fashioned me and him and her and him and her regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they live. Regardless of their intellectual capacity or their physical infirmities, regardless, God doesn't make any junk. And so that should distinguish me. He is our creator. He is also our instructor. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Repeatedly through Psalm 119, David is saying, teach me, teach me, teach me, instruct me, instruct me. And the word teach is not used here, but he prays for this because he knows he needs it from God, right? If we're going to get understanding, it's got to come from God. 
We can't figure this out ourselves. And he's very specific in that. He's asking for wisdom, for insight. He's asking for the same thing here that he seems to be asking for last week. God, give me good discernment and judgment. Give me understanding. Because from that understanding flows a lifestyle. From that foundational, just that platform that we're building on of understanding comes how we begin to live our lives. And only through spiritual wisdom and discernment are we then able to take God's Word, as we saw last week, and apply it to situations that the Bible just doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't address these things specifically. But he says, God, give, give me understanding. Help me see that. The basic biblical truth that's foundational to our walk with Christ and foundational to our walk with our fellow man that's represented by this little bitty letter. I think Micah summarized it well. Oh man, what is good? Well, he has told you. What does the Lord require of you? That you do justice, that you love kindness, and that you walk humbly with your God. And that that impacts every step we take, every relationship we build. Your life is planned and purposeful. Understanding this is foundational. Secondly, Notice what he says. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Our afflictions flow from God's faithfulness. Believing this affects others. It impacts others. It has an impact in their lives. There is a sacred interconnectedness to our lives. No man is an island. There's an interconnectedness there. Now, we share, listen, as, as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we share a foundational confession of faith. David says, those who fear you, that's who I identify with. Those who are obedient to you. Those who walk with you, O oh God. Those who are walking. He said earlier in verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. So this foundational confession of faith goes all the way back to what Jesus said. That his disciples are marked by what? By our obedience. By our love for him, our love for one another, and how we walk in obedience to his word. So those who fear you, David says, I'm a companion of them. Of those who keep your precepts. So we share this foundational confession of faith and we share life together. We share life together. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, listen, I just, I put these verses in my notes. Listen to it again. And I want you to think about the people that are a part of this body of Christ, that are part of your life, that are part of the body of Christ. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, he says, and individually members of it. An obedient life is a living witness to others. And that obedient lifestyle generates joy in the lives of others. It, it generates hope in the lives of others. David says, they see me because I've hoped in your word and they rejoice. They're delighted to see how I walk with you, God, through my afflictions, through my suffering. Does it delight my heart to see my brothers and sisters in Christ hurting? Maybe. 
I believe the, the psalmist here is saying it should. It should delight our hearts as we see the faithfulness of God being lived out in the faithfulness of other brothers and sisters in Christ as they walk through difficulty and do it holding on to Jesus and they do it with joy. We share this life together. And that hope that I see in you enables me to take hold of God's hand more firmly as he holds on to me. You see that? And the important truth we learn in these verses is that all of that affliction... All of that suffering, if you will, come from the faithful hand of God. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now, our afflictions are not necessarily a sign of God's punishment. They can be. But they're not necessarily a sign of that. But they are always, and I believe this with all my heart, church, they are always a sign of God's faithfulness. They are. The writer of Hebrews says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he reprove, when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom, when his father does not discipline and if you're left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And the writer goes on to describe how earthly fathers have disciplined us and we respected them. He says, how much more should we be subject to the father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time. They do it with fallible wisdom. They do it the best way that they can, but it's not always good. It's not always best. But his discipline. He says, even though it seems painful rather than pleasant, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. God is training. God is shaping. God is fashioning us. And even in his affliction, even in his discipline, the psalmist affirms God's word. He trusts in God's rules and God's ways. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. One writer said, true Christians are sure about the rightness of their troubles, even when they cannot see the intent of them. Did you hear that? I know that what I go through is right. I don't understand it. I know what you go through, because it comes from God's faithful hand, is right. But I don't know why all the time. I wouldn't even begin to try to understand why all the time. Since God is sovereign, he is the ultimate source of our afflictions. That's hard to grab hold of, I know. But that's what the word says over and over and over. And he does not randomly afflict us. He's not up there just playing games. His rules are righteous and he is faithful. And it's out of that faithfulness that he sends us our afflictions. Spurgeon said this. A hopeful man is a gift sent by God when things are going downhill or when he is in danger. When the hopes of one believer are fulfilled, his companions are made glad, strengthened, and led to hope also. He says it is good for the eyes to see a person whose witness is that the Lord is true. It is one of the joys of Christians to hold conversations with more spiritually mature Brothers and sisters, I read that quote earlier this week and my brain just went off 
thinking of brothers and sisters in Christ in this church who over the years have exhibited time and time and time and time and time again how much more mature they are than me. And as I've seen them suffer, and as I've seen them go through trials, it's just been a joy. It's been a joy. I'm a better man because of that. I'm a better man because of their suffering, because of their faith, because of their maturity, because of the way they endured that. And and names just kept coming to mind. I thought of people way past, and I thought of people still right here. Okay? I mean, I thought of Gary, I thought of Gene, I thought of Gail, I, I thought of Rachel Creel. I've, I, and i got to be careful, because if I start naming names, I'll leave somebody out, and you know how that goes. Okay? I went back, though, earlier this morning, and I pulled up a video of a testimony that Gail Clayton gave to a group of men in November of 2017. And I, brother, I know you're watching. And so I'd rather ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. I didn't call Gail and ask him if I could share this. So, Gail, brother, you know I love you. Um, but I went back and watched that, I think it was about 17 minutes, something like that. Gail was diagnosed with, with cancer in 2005 and then again in 2013 with another very rare form of cancer. In this testimony that he gave in the choir room that night with the men sitting in there, he quoted from Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I, and I made some notes. I didn't make them that night because I was holding my phone recording this, but I made some notes of, of what Gail had said as he was sharing this event, these events, all of these things that had gone on in his life, he said, God has been faithful to me during the whole of this cancer. He said, this cancer has not concerned me one bit. And, and I know Gail well enough to know that that's absolutely true. This has not concerned me one bit. I knew that I was in God's hands. I would get the best medical care I could get. What else could I do? What else could he do, he said. Just trust the Lord, get the best medical care I can. And then Gail went on and he shared the account of a woman touching the hem of Jesus' robe. And he said, this is what Gail said, I have touched the hem of Jesus through faith. I've heard that from him. I heard that from him a week ago in a phone conversation. I, I seem to hear that from him constantly, regardless of what he's going through. And I take great joy in that suffering. I, create, I take great joy in that faith. And I'm a better man. We are a better church because of brothers and sisters like that. You see how this is interconnected? Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And I know, O oh Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The third thing we see in this, notice what he says next. God, I know that your comfort is found in your love and mercy. This is his promise to you. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. 
Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Affliction is, C.S. Lewis said that affliction is God's megaphone. Right? It's how he gets our attention sometimes. Is that not true? It is. Affliction then makes God's promises come alive to us. And those promises come alive to us as we see other brothers and sisters in Christ holding on to those promises in spite of what they're dealing with, even through what they're dealing with. And those gods and that affliction makes God's promises come alive because we know his comfort and his experience and we experience his mercy. And he has promised us, promised that to us. David doesn't pray for these afflictions to stop. Never does he pray that they stop. He just prays for God's comfort, for his mercy. For his love to hold him. Notice what he says. Look at this progression. Read that verse backwards. And let's just work our way back. God, I am your servant. I am your servant. Called to be obedient. Called to walk with you and do what you tell me to do. God, I am your servant. And God, you have made promises to me through your word. As your servant, I can trust your word. You have made promises to me through your word. And then notice that, God, those promises comfort me. I hold on to those promises. I'm hanging on to them like the anchor we've sung about earlier. And finally, God, those promises comfort me because they are established in your steadfast love, your covenant love to me, your covenant love to us that was sealed once and for all through the blood of Jesus. God, you have promised me that in all these things, all these afflictions, all these trials, that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Right? God, you have promised me. That not death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor demons, nor no height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've promised me that, right? So God, I hold on to that. And I hold on to that in the face of those who would oppose me. And over and over in these last four sections, David was hounded by the opponents of God. He was hounded by those who were opposed to him. And here, here he prays, and this is somewhat of an anomaly in, in Psalm 119. This is where it gets thrown off if you're trying to memorize. Because I, I memorize by rhythm. Well, this verse is out of rhythm. And it's the only one in Psalm 119 that has three phrases. It's the only one. And it messes me up as I'm trying to get into the rhythm of two phrases But this one has three phrases. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. And this three-line verse is a prayer for evil to come to the wicked. For judgment to come to the wicked. For the wicked to be caught in their own snares. Call it what you will. But notice, as in the previous section, that these, these people are liars David said in the last section, they smear me with these lies. And here it says they're disrespectful. And what does he do? He prays that God will take care of them. And then he meditates on God's word. Period. That's all he does. Lord, I'll I'll lift them up to you and put them in your hand. 
And then I'll focus on your word. I'll focus on your faithfulness. I'll leave myself to you, Lord. And he immerses himself in God's word. He doesn't immerse himself in anger. He doesn't immerse himself in retribution. He doesn't immerse himself in being sure that his voice is heard. He doesn't immerse himself in getting back. He leaves them in God's hands and puts himself in God's word. It's a good model for us. It's a good model for us. And this firm immersion in the word just leads to others being increasing in their wisdom, increasing in their joy, increasing in their growth. God's promise, his comfort is found in his love and his mercy. And then look at this last point. Your life, listen very carefully, your life right now is a validating testimony. The question is, is it, what is it validating? Your life is a validating testimony. And David prays that God's people would grow through it. Look at verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Your life, my life, is giving validity at this very moment to something or someone. Your life is validating a philosophy. Your life is validating a religion. Your life is validating a God. It could have a little g or a big g. But your life right now is giving credibility to some kind of profession. And the psalmist says, God, I want your people who fear you to look to me and grow in an understanding of your word. I want your people, Lord, to look to me. And God's people are described here in two ways in this passage. They're described as God-fearing and God-knowing. And unfortunately, that latter part of, of, of being a smart, okay, if I could use that word, being an intelligent believer, somehow or other that's fallen in disrepute. Somehow or other, that seems to have fallen in a poor light. And, and let me quote Spurgeon one more time. He, he describes these people as having both devotion and instruction. He says they have both the spirit and the knowledge of true religion. He says, we know some believers who are gracious but are not intelligent. <laughs> and on the other hand, we know certain professors of Christianity who have all the head knowledge with no heart conviction. David, however, is a man who combines devotion with intelligence. Spurgeon says, we want neither devout dunces or intellectual icebergs. Amen, Charles, if you don't mind me calling you that. And both of these characteristics are seen and learned, listen, through living, breathing examples. Okay? You and I are an example to something or someone. First, he says, God's people see me suffer well, Lord. And as they see me suffer well, we saw this previously, then they put confidence, hope in the Lord, and they're going to trust in your word. They're going to rejoice in your faithfulness through this faithful brother and sister. And here he says, they're going to see me trust you in the face of opposition. They're going to, they're going to see me just entrust my enemies to you and come to you, Lord, through your word. And they're going to be comforted through that. They're going to be encouraged through that. They're going to grow through that. The other verse that's been rolling through my mind all week 
just just as I've been looking at this, meditating on it, thinking about it, is is our God being the God of all comfort, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And listen very carefully to this next sentence. Who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which would we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see that? We're not a puddle that the comfort of God is poured into. We're not a cup. We're not a container. We're a pipe. We're a, we're a river. We're a stream. We're a means by which that comfort that comes from God flows through us into the lives of others. And he goes one step further in verse 6, Paul does. Listen to this. If we are afflicted, have you ever asked why? I have. Why, Lord? What's the purpose for this? And I said a minute ago, I don't understand the purposes in a lot of the suffering and trials, but I will point you to this as one absolute reason for it. He says, if you are afflicted, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you impatiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. One of the reasons that God brings affliction and trials and discipline into my life is so you will be comforted and encouraged by that. And it happens when that comes into your life, too. It's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about each other. And David closes out this prayer. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. He realizes, David does, people are looking at my life. They're going to see how I deal with enemies. They're going to see how I deal with affliction. They're going to see how I deal with suffering. That life is going to be a validation of the testimony that I love you, Lord, and that you love me. God, please protect my life from personal sin that would diminish Or destroy that testimony. He realizes that personal sin will harm his witness. It will harm his brothers and sisters. It will harm the faithful people of God. And he prays that that would not happen. Now no one is blameless. We know that. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why in this journey of faith, God calls us specifically to live godly lives. Does he not? He calls us to live godly lives. And we are called specifically to keep watch on one another and help one another to live that godly life. And we are called specifically that when we do sin, we are called to confess that sin to one another. And when that confession comes, then we are specifically called to love one another and restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. And as we restore one another and as we comfort one another and encourage one another with the same grace and forgiveness that we have received, then we run this race of faith together and we run it well and we finish together. You see how it works? So our joys, our trials, our celebrations and those things that crush us are those things that we share together. No man, no woman is an island. It's, it's a faithful witness of faithful pilgrims who are walking through this world and trusting our shepherd as we help shepherd each other. Let's pray together.
Lord, you tell us in your word that we're to take care. That we're to take care of ourselves and we're to take care of each other, Lord. We're to watch out for each other and to be on guard against an evil, unbelieving heart that could lead us, Lord, to not walk with you. That could lead us, Lord, to slide and drift in our faith. God, you call us to exhort one another every day, as long as we have a day. So help us in that, Father, I pray. Thank you for your word. It's a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. It's a guide to help us understand, Lord, the dangers that we face. It's a guide that helps us understand, Lord, why these things come into our lives. They come from your faithful hand. Thank you for that faithfulness. Thank you that morning by morning, Lord, we see new mercies that come from your faithful hand, even in the midst of our trials and difficulties. Father, I pray that our lives will be a living witness to the living hope that we have in Christ. Lord, guard us against sin. Guard us against those besetting sins. God, help us love you well enough to love one another. Help us keep our eyes on Jesus, Lord, as the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can care for one another well. Lord, help us, I pray, to see that every human being Every neighbor we have, every person in this community, Lord, is put together, crafted, shaped by you. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. All for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.